Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim G.K., sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of The Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of The Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Core Business Show. I'm Tim Jacquet, your host. Today, we're going to talk about topic is selling to the government how solicitation is, is are issued. Uh we are concluding our final uh our series for the past almost three weeks now, uh every day on how to sell to the government. This is a recording that we made uh about a couple of years ago and I thought it was a good material that we can use for the show. The final step probably is tomorrow, uh which would conclude the whole series and we're gonna talk about how to set up your financing. Um and uh, in depth on Friday, we're going to actually talk about the GSA solicitation again uh, with a couple of uh, GSA experts. So take a listen to that show on Friday. So anyway, we just take a station break real quick. We'll be back with the show. I'm Tim Jacquet, your host. You're listening to The Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. Apple Capital Group in Jacksonville, Florida, is a commercial lender that specializes in asset-based loans, equipment leasing and financing, invoice financing, commercial real estate loans, and asset-based financing in the U.S. and Canada. Apple Capital Group is a direct lender that lends on their private equity investment portfolio. 90% of most loans are decided within two hours and vendor funding within 24 hours after documents are completed with a one-page application. No slow no's, just a quick decision and a fast yes. To get more information about lending from Apple Capital Group, call 866-611-7457. That's 866-611-7457 to speak with one of our loan specialists. Or visit us right now at applecapitalgroup.com. Welcome back to The Core. Once again, here's Tim Jacquet. talked a number of times here about this, this period of uh, 268 days that occur in an RFP situation between uh, between when the solicitation starts or the process starts until you get the contract. Well, it's it's not really uh, magic or witchcraft that occurs during that 68, the 268 days. But all of those things that are occurring are aimed at First of all, the government being able to fully understand the proposals that are submitted, both technically and from a cost standpoint, for two reasons. Number one, they want to be sure that, they, that they're making a selection of the one that's most advantageous to the government. And number two, they want to be able to withstand a protest. When the protest starts, they want to have the process that they went through to select the winning bidder, the winning offeror, fully documented and fully logical so that they can defend themselves. So this is what they do as they go through the, the uh, uh, analysis process. And this is what we're going to discuss here as we go through. There's such as things as directed procurements, non-competitive, so on, so on, TV agreements. All these things get, get talked about in the RFP process. The, the elements of the solicitation. Some of the most important ones are this specimen contract that's going to be part of your proposal 
and it's going to become the contract. When that gets signed, that's what you're going to have to uh, live with. The other parts of these, you're convincing the government that you're the best contractor, the best source, the best way of procuring what it is they, they are uh, going to be uh, procuring. The supporting documents, they're telling you what this requirement is. They're telling you in specifications. They're telling you in drawings. Terms and conditions are those clauses that we talked about, uh, talked about earlier. In the solicitation instructions, be very careful that you have every one of those covered in your response, that you've addressed each one of those items because they're going to be evaluated and, and if, you, if you come up short on some of those, uh, you can expect to be uh, excluded from further discussions. So the government goes through and decides, number one, what it is they want to buy. And then they sit down with a, a group of technical folks and decide what's the best way to evaluate the responses. How are we going to know whether or not this guy, the responses, is going to be able to do what we want him to do? If you have a paragraph in the, in the specification and the bidder really comes back and, and repeats that paragraph, they haven't shown you any, any understanding of what the paragraph said. When you go back in and, re, and respond to that paragraph, you have to say, we're going to do the following this way or because, or we've done this in the past the following way. You have to explain why you can perform that particular part of the specification. So that's what they're, they're developing there in the evaluation criteria. How are we going to know whether or not this guy knows what he's talking about? So then the, the solicitation gets issued. And then, and then we hold a, uh, a pre-bid conference. And we notify in the solicitation where that conference is going to be held, what the requirements are to get in and, and, and attend it, and so on. So we hold the conference. Many questions come up in that conference. Uh, questions may come up before the conference. All of those questions, either before or during the conference, get documented and get answered. And they get answered in writing. And so any question that you may bring up you know, prior to the conference or during the conference is going to be answered to everybody who, who had uh, gotten that solicitation. And we, I guess we had a few words about that the other day, that, that uh, be a little conscious of the fact that the question that you ask is going to be answered to everybody. And there could be questions you don't want everybody to know the answer to. So be careful of those. You know, think think about what the effect is of your of the answer to your question before you ask it, because once it's asked, it's in the record and it's going to be answered. Proposals eventually come in, and they come they come in at a at a stated time and a stated date and a stated location. And if you're not there, we it was discussed this morning. If you're if they're not there in the time that they're due. Uh, the chances are uh, almost 100% that you're not going to be considered. And unless you have a very valid reason. There was a flood and the uh, post office lost a couple of trucks and my stuff was on that, uh, on that truck. And you've got everything documented as to when you mailed the thing. And you've, got, uh, you know, it, it, you've got documentation as to when it was received by the, uh, the mail room at the government facility and, and it was received there two days before the bid opening, and they screwed it up by not getting. You know, it, it's very—it's a very torturous route you have to go to prove that you were timely. Uh, if, if they got 15 bids in, the chances are small that they're going to want to deal with all of this torturous route because they don't need you. They don't need you to establish that they had a competitive procurement. See, they're not, much, not so much interested in dealing with one of you as an individual company. They're interested in documenting that they had a competitive procurement. And that in the evaluation process, they come up with the, the, the best of the offerors. Because at that point, the marketing that you had done previous wasn't to the people that are going to be on this uh, evaluation committee. It was to the people that did this, developed the evaluation criteria. And it was to the people that helped write the statement of work, the scope of work. 
So they're not involved in this now necessarily in this evaluation. So, so that marketing, so these people are only interested in evaluating the proposals that come in. As a matter of fact, in many cases, we'll show a little later on, the evaluators don't know the companies, don't know the names of the companies that, that were submitted. The, the technical portion of the proposals will be stripped out. And that's the part that these evaluators will see. They don't want them to know who the, who the bidders are. So they're going to de determine the uh, responsiveness. Have all the boxes been checked? Have, have the, has the specification been addressed? Uh, because at that point, they've got 20 proposals, right? Well, if they can strip out five or 10 of those because they're not responsive, it cuts down the reading, it cuts down the evaluation process. It makes the whole process go a lot faster. So if you're not responsive, they're going to set you aside. Then they go through the, the, the proposal read process. They come up with, a, uh, with an evaluation, the strengths and weaknesses and so on. Out of that comes a rating of the proposal. Company A is rated number one. Company B is rated number two and so on in the evaluation process. Then they go from the, from the, uh, the rating to interviewing proposers. That's, a, that's a, uh, a kind of a generic term. They're going to have discussions with the proposal because almost almost always in an RFP process there's going to be there's going to be a need for discussions there's going to be something in the solicitation something in the specification something in the drawings that that got interpreted differently by these proposers so company A interpreted it one way company B another way and so on so they have to clear that up because when when the contract gets written there has to be only one interpretation, and then has to be the interpretation of the government. So they have to come back to you and, and say, see, you, you said the following in response to specification paragraph number umpteen. That isn't what we had in mind there. We need you to say the following, and this is what, we, what the interpretation is. So they're going to have those discussions with the, with the various proposers. And again, if they can cut down the ones that are uh, responsive by getting rid of the non-responsive ones, it makes those conversations much easier and much faster. And, and much fewer conversations. So then once they've, once they've done that, they go back and look at that rating. You know, maybe one or one is no longer number one because they refused to accept the interpretation or they were, they were quibbling on whether or not they would accept it and so on. So they become number two or number three. And so they, they have to reevaluate where they are. Then they go to what's called the source selection official. And the source selection official is normally someone very senior in the activity, very senior in the agency, that, that, uh, that has authority in, many, in most cases over both the contracting officer and the technical folks who originated the requirement. They normally will not have authority, not be in a, in a line of, of uh, control, over the people that were on the selection committee. They want that selection committee to be independent. But the source selection official is the one who's going to decide out of that, that listing of one, two, three, ten, ten or so offerers, which one they're going to go with. And, and it isn't necessarily the one that comes out number one. The source selection official can look at all the valuation criteria and say, yeah, number one is there, and that's what you're recommending, but, you know, I really feel that number two is the guy that ought to get it, or number three is the guy that ought to get it, because, because, because. And they have to document why they don't agree with the, the recommendation that comes out of the evaluation committee. So the selection is made. Then you get to, they get to notify the proposers that the selection has been made. And, and at that point, there hasn't been a contract signed yet. But you're notified that either you've been selected or that you haven't been selected. If you've been selected, there very well may be between this notification and the signing of the contract, there may be some negotiation there. And you go in as the selectee, which is a nice position to be in in your negotiations, right? But it also means that they've got something that they want to negotiate. There's something in your proposal. There's something where 
something that isn't clear, something that hasn't been decided, something that, that needs to be talked about. So you need to be aware that that's why they're negotiating. Of course, they're going to tell you what those, what those elements are when they get to the negotiation. Then they sign a contract, and at the moment the contract is signed and that the, that's been notified uh, publicly and you've been uh, notified that, that someone else has, has won the contract, immediately request a debrief, immediately, so that you know exactly up front, as soon as possible, why you didn't win. Because in that debrief, they're going to tell you why you didn't win. They're going to tell you where you were in that listing of, of three, four, five, ten contractors. If you were number eight or nine, hey, you're probably not going to want to do anything about that. You're going to probably say, okay, I've learned a lesson. You've told me why I was not the winner, and I'm going to put that into my database, and the next time I propose, I'm going to be sure I address those discrepancies or those, those things that, that the government didn't like in my next proposal. If you're closer, though, if you're number, uh, number two, number three, something like that, and they tell you why you didn't win, you may, you may quibble with that. You may say, wait a minute. You know, number one, you didn't evaluate my prices right. You didn't add them up right. You didn't, you didn't use the correct multiplier. You had the decimal point in the wrong place. And th those things happen. Those things happen. And if, if that comes out of, out of the debrief that you feel that, that uh, this evaluation wasn't done correctly, didn't give adequate weight to such and such, then protest. Protest to the contracting officer immediately. Before the, before the contract is, see, the, the longer the protest waits, you only have a certain amount of time, but the longer that goes on, the awardee is, is gearing up and is performing. <laughs> so anyway, something could come up in the press. Something alerts you that, hey, this wasn't, this wasn't quite kosher. So you go back and you protest on that basis. So be sure you, if you are the loser, be sure that you that you have this in the back of your mind that you know th th there's always a possibility. You know you don't want to go into a very lengthy, a very expensive uh, process with getting lawyers involved and so on, unless there really is a serious issue. But if it's a clear-cut issue like uh, the guy wasn't a small business when he bid, then you want to protest that because you're going to win that. There was, in fact, there was a case here just decided within the last two months, and I may have mentioned uh, on day one. A guy had presented himself as a small business for a couple of years. And finally, somebody said, wait a minute, this guy's not a small business. He's a division. <laughs> He's a division of this, of this bigger business. And they protested. And they blew him in. And he had to pay like a million-dollar fine for having... Uh, having well, he, he won a lot of business during that time. And, and one, of the, <laughs> one of the protesters commented, shoot, a million dollars, he... You know, he got that many times over by having, uh, but at least he's no longer able to bid as a small business, right? <laughs> okay, what the government does is go through and look at what kind of people do we need in order to evaluate these proposals. Uh, if you're if you're having proposals come in on uh, architectural services, uh, you don't want contracts guys on that team. You want somebody that has architectural background. They have to have uh, reviewed the evaluation criteria and so on and understand what's being asked for so that when the proposals come in, they're ready to do the evaluation. You also have to ensure there's no conflict of interest, that, that none of these proposers have anything vested in who gets selected as a successful contractor. And that can be as, as, uh, as simple as one of the evaluators has got a, a spouse or a relative who's working for one of these uh, companies that's going to bid. At this point in time, you're not necessarily aware of all the, who the, all the bidders are going to be, but you do know who you sent the solicitation to. And so you have to make sure that none of those people who are on this board have any conflict of interest regarding any of the people that you know that you sent the solicitation to. Somebody may get a package uh, at the last minute, you know, after this board's been established and so on, and, and come in and bid, and then you find out at that point that there's a conflict of interest. That person's got to be replaced. The government cannot go forward with something where they know there's going to be a conflict of interest between the members of the board and the bidders that are, uh, that are involved. 
security requirements, not only, not only uh, government security, but security of the information that's in these proposals. Because you don't want your information bleeding over into uh, someone else's proposal and finding, its, finding itself out there in the public domain. Somebody under, suddenly understands all the names of the people you're going to use for interpreters. Now, there has to be very, very strict security requirements. In many cases, for instance, when we used to deal with NASA down at uh, Johnson Space Center, they would select a wing of the uh, Air Force buildings at Ellington Air Force Base there, uh, there's south of Houston, and they would seal it off. And the people who were on those evaluation boards would be uh, sequestered in there all day long. No one could come in and, in and out without having specific access. And all the paperwork, all the inf information that had been submitted was sealed into those uh, rooms. So it, there was no chance of it leaking out or so on. Because when, as we indicated, there's going to be discussions with, with uh, the bidders. Well, if one guy really answered all the questions very, very well, answered all the specifications, he doesn't want his approach out in the, in the public domain or bleeding over into somebody else's evaluation. So when they get to the negotiations, the other guy says, oh, yeah, what I meant to say was, and, and picking up those other answers. So this, there's very, very strict security on this stuff so that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't bleed. They're going to be part of the, uh, of the response to questions and clarifications and so on because they're now very uh, conversant with the requirement and they're also very conversant with the uh, evaluation criteria. So the evaluation team is going to look at the responsiveness. They're going to decide. Was everything answered? Was everything uh, responded to in the solicitation? So we can go on considering the, uh, uh, the proposal. If they're non-responsive, then the companies that were not responsive are notified. You're not going to, be, not going to have further consideration. And this is a practical thing. If you string these people along, they don't know they're, they're no longer being considered. They're going to come in and complain. They're going to come in and complain. Hey, you knew two months ago that you weren't going to uh, be dealing with me. I had to keep people on board. I had to keep people assigned. I, I couldn't use them somewhere else because I was waiting to go through this process. And, and they come in and say, hey, I need, I need to be paid something for that. So they, they decided, okay, we're going to tell them up front that they're, no, that they're not responsive and we're not going to be further consideration. And then they're going to decide what's the schedule for completing these evaluations. And, and that's going to be based on how many proposals they got, obviously. Uh, they get five proposals, they can probably have it done in two weeks. They get 20 proposals, it's going to take a little longer. So they start the evaluation. And they go through it and they make the initial uh, evaluation. Now the, If you get 20 proposals, the contracting officer has the authority to decide a competitive range. You know, if you've got 20 proposals and five or six of them are grouped around a certain area and, and they've determined that that probably is where the competitive range ought to be, they can exclude people that are outside that, outside the competitive range. Everybody is grouped in here uh, between uh, a million and a million three and you got three guys out here that are three million, and you got one that's down here at uh, half a million. The contracting also has the authority to say, we're not going to consider those people. They're outside the competitive range. They don't make sense. Then the contracting officer, with those people that are in that competitive range, will start the discussions to make sure that everybody that they've put in that range uh, understands the requirements and that the government understands the response. Following those discussions, you can get a final proposal revision letter. And the purpose of that is to document the discussions that have been held so that the, the, the company that submits that final proposal revision is accepting all the things that were discussed in the, uh, in the discussions and has put those into that letter and said, hey, I will do all those things that we discussed. The evaluation criteria, this whole process going through an uh, evolution over time, they used to assign specific numbers to a lot of the uh, to the evaluation criteria. 
and they found that people would game it. If one of the criteria had a, a number of uh, 15 out of 100, uh, or another one had uh, 45 out of 100, they would put all their emphasis on that 45 out of 100, and, and they would gain then 45 points out of 100. Some of the others might have been uh, not uh, responded to as crisply, but because they gamed it and ended up with a higher number than somebody who was really better qualified but hadn't gamed it, they came back and said, the criteria is tailored, and the relative weights, or the weights rather, are at the agency's discretion, and they're now relative. They would say evaluation criteria number one is most important, but no weight on it, no actual number associated, just that it's most important. Uh, evaluation criteria number two is less important. Uh, evaluation criteria number three is less important still. And, and some of that is to give this source selection board uh, a little more flexibility so that they can add or, or decrease what the value is of that weight that they, they assign to a particular, uh, particular item. Depending on as they go through, they become aware of, gee, you know, this, we, we thought we were going to have 40% uh, of the weight in this criteria, but we read the proposal and we realize it really should only be 25%. But it still is maybe the most important. So they can use the relative weight process at their discretion to really uh, help themselves, help themselves in the evaluation. They would find themselves under the old system ending up with a, an award they didn't want. And so it, it, it would end up with, either they'd end up with an award they didn't want or they had to start all over again. They'd have to cancel the solicitation and start all over again. And, you know, go through that whole, that whole monthly, uh, month-long, six-month, nine-month, ten-month-long process. So this way they backed off and said, look, we're going to assign relative weights and we're not going to disclose what we had designed as the number uh, out of uh, the percentage out of 100 that's going to be assigned. It's just going to be this is most important, this is less important, this is next less important. They must include a cost or price in every, every source. Like You must include the cost or price. You know, if you... If, if you have a requirement for an aircraft uh, and the, the base requirement is uh, that it has to go 500 miles an hour, but you'd like to get one that goes 600 miles an hour, unless you have a cost that you can associate with that extra 100 miles an hour, I mean, it, it, it's unlimited. You could be paying three times the contract value to get that extra 100 miles. You don't want, you don't want to put yourself in a position where the cost is irrelevant or the cost is not considered in the evaluation. So as you go through the criteria, obviously, what's the technical approach? How have they described how they're going to perform this contract? Do they understand what the requirements are? They may not understand this as the, uh, as the proposals are evaluated. Do they have management and personnel available that can, that can uh, run this, uh, this project? Does the management people that are uh, do the management people that are that are mentioned have they ever done anything like this before? Do they have any background? Do the personnel that are going to work on it do they have the required uh, licenses? Do they have the required uh, degrees? Do they have required certifications that are going to they're going to work on this? Do they have the required clearances? Right now in government contracting, uh, security clearance is a big thing. And and just recently, uh, Department of Defense announced that they were out of money. For running these clearances, they were going to stop stop the clearance process. Well, the, the services contractors are up in arms over this. They're going right to the Secretary of Defense. Hey, you can't do this. We've got to have these things processed. How are we going to put people on the contracts? They've even volunteered to pay the cost. But you've got to keep these, this clearance process going. What, what, what kind of experience does a company have? Have they been out building uh, submarines and now they want to build aircraft? And we, uh, is, there, is there a relationship between what they've done in the past between, and with what they want to do under this contract? If they say they're going to deliver something in two months and everybody else says these people are going to, it's going to take six months, are they realistic? Is there any realism involved in the proposal?
Do they have the resources? Do they have the financing? We had a guy at the Navy one time that we were convinced had no ability to do what, no financial ability to do what, what we needed done. He came in for a, a meeting with the director of contracts to prove that he had the financing, and he had a briefcase with him with $2 million in cash in the briefcase to prove that he had the capability. <laughs> That's cash, right? I mean, you, uh, how do you uh, <laughs> how do you argue? He doesn't have the cash. You don't know whose cash it is, but he's got it. We we didn't know where he got it, but he had it. He had, <laughs> but he got the contract. He, he proved he had proved that he had the financial capability. Uh, you also have to show that you can that you can comply with delivery and that you had a, you have a satisfactory performance uh, record, you know, past performance. And a record of integrity. They don't want to deal with people that don't have integrity, don't have business ethics. People like that are going to be a problem during the performance. You're not going to be able to believe what they tell you. You're not going to be able to uh, uh, deal on a uh, cooperative basis with people that don't have good business ethics. Do they have the facilities? Are they going to have to uh, build something in order to uh, perform this contract? And they still say they can deliver in two months. You know, they have to compare these things and say, is, is, do they have the, the skills to be able to do it? Do they have any experience? Do they have the accounting system to be able to account for the costs and go from the contract to the performance to the invoice? Those things all have to tie, to, tie together. Are they ineligible to receive an award? Uh, They've got foreign ownership, or they've got something that makes them ineligible for award. They've been disbarred for some reason. Uh, do they understand the statement of work? Some of these are, are obviously some uh, restating of previous points. Do they have the, the uh, facilities? Do they have experience in the technology? Have they ever produced uh, wind generators before? Have they ever installed them before? You're listening to The Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. When they say uh, that a particular part of the proposal is going to take uh, uh, 50 hours to do something, does that make sense with what you know that it's going to take? We had a contract one time with the Navy, and it was a cost-type arrangement. They had come in and, and showed us the number of labor hours they had for each each part of this overall contract. And uh, we had a guy at the Washington Navy Yard who was a, a, a machinist. And so we called him in and said, "Look at this! Look at the machining parts of this proposal, along with some other folks that were doing other parts." And he looked at a couple of the processes, and he says, "Shoot, these are overstated by at least 25 percent." in the number of hours that it's going to take to do these. He said, we've done some similar items to this down at the Navy Yard. Bingo. We wrote the thing up as in, in that particular area as minus 25%. Well, we were running out of time to do the, evaluate the rest of the proposal, so we just took 25% across the board. And that's where we started the negotiation with this company. Hey, we're offer, making you an offer 25% less than what you proposed. My God, <laughs> they were falling off the chairs. But we had documentation for this particular area, and so this boom, boom, boom. Well, we didn't end up at 25% uh, uh, reduction, obviously, because that was a, wasn't really a valid way of, of saying that it was all 25% high. But we ended up with a thing uh, in, the, in the neighborhood of 12% uh, reduction. And had we not started and had that, that one concrete example, we wouldn't have ended up where we were. So you have to look at whether or not they really know what they're going to be doing, whether or not they've estimated this thing correctly. You know, there's, there are a lot of commercially available accounting systems that you can go out and, uh, Karen's probably aware of those, you can go out and get those and bring them into the business. You know, when you're a small business, you know, you got five or 10 or 50 employees, you may not need that kind of an account, a, a sophisticated accounting system. But if you're going to suddenly quadruple your business and you're going to be 45 people or something, 
you may want to go out and, and, and purchase something like that. And you, you're going to state in your proposal that that's what you're going to do. You have to convince them that you can make that transition. You know, your quality control system at this point uh, may consist of one person in the, uh, in, in the organization. And that one person may also be uh, a vice president, uh, may also be maybe in the financial department. But if you're going to go to 45 people, you may have to set up a quality control department and, and write some procedures. And you can do those procedures uh, up front. And, and again, there's a lot of that stuff is out there available to be pulled down and then customized for your application. But you've got to convince this, this customer that you have the ability to do that, to grow your business uh, quadruple or double or whatever, whatever it's going to take. If you can't convince them, you're not going to get the award. The proposed subcontracting. Uh, we talked uh, earlier about the fact that you might be using somebody as window dressing. Uh, you know, they're going to want to talk to you about that. You're really going to use these people, or is it in here really because you want to have a woman-owned business in the bid? And he proposed travel because travel can become a significant cost item in some of these uh, some of these proposals. And if you're responding to a cost-type arrangement a cost-type uh, contract, travel can become a huge cost item. And if you're located on the East Coast and the, and the project office is located on the West Coast, you know, that travel can become a significant item. These findings have to be presented because they may end up being presented to a... Uh, in a protest. So they have to be understandable. Because when you go before GAO, if it gets that far, you know, there's not going to be an engineer on the other side trying to decide this. There's going to be an attorney. There's going to be a, a, another contracts person. They have to be able to understand why you made the selections that you did. Findings are, are in, uh, in writing, provided to the contracting officer. The contracting officer is the final, final authority in all of these uh, uh, evaluations, all of these uh, procurements. Contracting officer is the only one that has the authority to bind the government. And the source selection official can come through with a, with a recommendation or a selection. If the contracting officer doesn't agree with that selection, the contracting officer can refuse to accept it. In most cases, they're probably not going to do that because this process has been, has been followed and so on, and, and, it, and make, it makes sense. But the contracting officer has the authority to do that. Now, in most cases, in most agencies, the contracting officer could not override their selection official, but they could refuse to accept the recommendation and could force it to another, uh, another level within the organization and get it decided. And, and probably would get decided in the chain of command <clears throat> who gives the contracting officer his warrant, his or her warrant, because at the head of every agency has contracting officer authority, and they delegate it down via the warrant process to contracting officers. So at some point, it'll get to somebody who has the, the ultimate authority. But the CO is, is responsible for accepting the uh, recommendations. Is there an adequate cost analysis? The, the, uh, the contract is financial strength. I had, I had, a, I had a, uh, a proposal from a company on the West Coast that had come up with some uh, innovative uh, algorithms for analyzing sonar uh, signals. And they came in and presented that in a white paper to our uh, engineering folks. And engineering folks said, yeah, we, we need to contract with this guy. So they sent down a purchase requisition. This was going to be sole source because it came in from a, on a white paper basis. And it, it was easy for them to justify this as, as, as sole source. I won't go into the reasons why, but it was easy for them to do. So we submitted, uh, submitted a solicitation. In came the proposal. Looked good. They responded to everything. I went through the analysis of their financial strength with our are some of our finance folks. The Navy has people uh, that are capable of doing that. And this guy was uh, about 30 seconds away from bankruptcy. He didn't, as <laughs> I won't use the crude, he didn't have a pot, but, uh, <laughs> or a window to throw it out of. Uh, 
But he was about 30 seconds away from, and we couldn't contract on that basis because there was no way that he was going to be able to. But I went back to the engineers and I said, is this algorithm so important or so innovative that we really needed to have it? And they said, yeah, definitely. So I went back to the company. I said, look, will you agree to a term in this contract that if you go bankrupt within the next 18 months after the contract, that the Navy owns that algorithm, owns those algorithms, owns all the technical data surrounding those algorithms. The guy said, show me where to sign. I mean, he's going to go out of business, right? <laughs> he wanted that contract. I said, be in here tomorrow, and we'll have the contract ready for signature. So he came in the next day, and he took the contract, and he said, I go straight to my bank. This goes straight to my bank, and it becomes security for... Uh, uh, getting financed to perform the contract. They went on to perform that contract successfully. And some of those algorithms are still used in the, in the Navy today in analyzing uh, sonar signals. So the financial analysis is very important. You have to know whether or not this guy can, can perform the contract. Yeah, here we talked earlier about Somebody's proposal is uh, $35, and everybody else is, uh, you know, everybody else is, a, is $100. Part of the analysis you're going to go through is that price quotations. You're going to see what what kind of prices came in, and and it is the guy who has the best technical approach. Is he way outside? Is he an outlier of that data? Either high or low. So you want to use that the the quotations. You also want to look at history. What did you pay for this in the past? And is this price today totally out of the question with regard to what you paid for it in the past? Are there areas where you need additional pricing inquiry? You need to look at, at uh, what this guy did that, that's going to require additional inquiry. Are there uh, published price lists? Are there commodity prices that are out there that you can use in your analysis? Also, the government, in most cases, and every case that I was associated with, had done its own independent analysis of what things should cost. And they're going to compare what the price that came in with those independent analysis. And if they're totally out of the ballpark, again, you've got to go back and you've got to resolve why they're out of the ballpark. And that's part of the, the questioning process that's going to go on. Again, you're going to look at the, uh, the data and the trends and so on. That appraisal of estimated labor. That's what we did with the with the machinist. We looked at a machining operation that was in there, and we we assessed it, and decided that it was much too high. Negotiated uh, indirect cost rates. In many cases, if you're involved in a in a cost type contract, a cost type arena, and if you're of any size, the government's going to negotiate overhead rates with you ahead of time uh, on your other contracts. And so they're going to want you to apply those in this in this contract as well. A funny story on uh, on overhead rates. Uh, dealing with NASA, we had we had uh, two programs down there. One was the uh, what we called the onboard shuttle, which was all the computers that were on board the shuttle, and the software that that ran on them. And the other one was what we called the ground shuttle. And the ground shuttle was all the mainframes, and the all the software that that, that ran on the mainframes. And both of these were cost-type contracts because these were development items of the shuttle. This was early years of the shuttle, you know, when it hadn't flown yet. And the the onboard shuttle stuff was sole source to IBM because it had been in the overall contract for the shuttle itself, and NASA had got gotten uncomfortable with the prime contractor that was doing that. Uh, managing this part of the uh, program as well. So they took it out of his contract and directed it to go to IBM because we had been the selected subcontractor anyway. So anyway, that was sole source to us. And so we were negotiating then uh, the definitization of that contract. They put us under a letter contract, and that's a whole other subject that I won't go into here, but they put us under a letter contract. At some point in the future then, at a stated time, you have to have that letter contract converted to a definitive contract. And it's going to be cost type. It's going to be cost plus a, uh, a fixed fee. And the ground shuttle was going through a competition. In both of these cases, they wanted a ceiling on the overhead rates. 
Karen will understand how that becomes a, a tough item. <laughs> so in the response to the ground shuttle, we had put in a, a proposed ceiling. It was going to be like 120%. The overhead rate was never going to be able to exceed 120%. We'd have to eat the cost if it did. Well, we hadn't settled on an overhead rate on the onboard. And they kept going around, well, we got to settle this overhead rate, you know, and we think it's in the neighborhood of 105, 110%. And we kept sidestepping that and saying, well, uh, you know, why don't, we, why don't we settle that once we've decided on all the costs and we've got everything else settled and then we can come back to that. Well, in the meantime, we, we were turning the crank on the uh, ground shuttle to get that awarded because <laughs> we wanted the 120% established. <laughs> So anyway, we finally we finally got that awarded, and then so about a week later, up comes the question again on the ground shuttle. Okay, we got all the costs settled here, and we've got all the technical questions answered. Now we got to get back to this question of the overhead rate ceiling. Well, see, NASA, you know, we've already got one established on the ground shuttle. Surely you would not want two overhead rate ceilings with the same company in the same facility working on the same projects. It just won't make any sense. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> one, one additional point on the understanding that you have to reach between the government and, and the contractor on the statement of work and so on, the requirements, specifications, whatever. Uh, and there was a, a section earlier regarding uh, who has authority to uh, tell you to do something or not do something under the contract. And it's the contracting officer that has that authority. In many cases, you're going to find your technical representative trying to tell you to do something. And I had one very specific example in dealing with the post office. We had a development contract that turned out we had accepted a lot of change work without ever getting a change order, without ever getting the contract modified. So we found ourselves... Number one, we, we dinged all the people that were involved that had decided to do it without getting a, a authorization. Uh, but then we had to put together change proposals and submit those. And we had like uh, maybe 10 different change proposals that had to be submitted and negotiated. And we started the negotiation, and bing, 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 we got, we got through about six of them. And about that time, the director of contracts resigned or retired, and a new guy came in. Well, the new guy didn't believe in, in uh, negotiating these things after the fact. So we were operating on a cost-type contract. So he decided that we should just take this as an overrun, cost overrun, and we wouldn't get any additional fee on it. Well, we went through a very laborious process of getting uh, all those negotiated, and we, we ended up getting fee on every bit of it and got all the costs. This, this guy... As a sidelight, he he imagined himself as looking like uh, General MacArthur. So you'd walk into his office, and at some point in the discussion, he would turn sideways. And he would pick up a, he had a corncob pipe, and he would pick up a corncob pipe, and he would sit there with his corncob <laughs> until you until you said, see, you know, you look just like General MacArthur. <laughs> Once you got through that, the pipe came in, we went back to back to discussion. <laughs> you meet a lot of characters in this world. <laughs> so anyway, we ended up, it, it was a very laborious. We had to get the vice president to come down and make presentations and, and so on. And so we finally got it all, all settled. We got fee on all of it. We got all the costs. But about two months later, I was down there, and one of the one of the guys came over. One of the guys that we were meeting with said, "Okay, this is what we want you to do now." Boom, boom, boom. And I said, "Hey, we would love to do that for you. That's a nice piece of work. Why don't you issue a change order, and then we'll we'll get right onto it and give you a proposal and so on." No, no, no. This is this is not really a change. This is uh, really something that we're really a natural extension of the contract. And I said, "Well, you know, I feel a lot better if you issue a change order, make it all clean. You know, we went through this business uh, with the new director here." Uh, five months ago, and, and, you know, it really would feel a lot better. If, so why don't you issue a change order, and then we'll go ahead and do it. No, we're not going to do that. You know, we want, I said, look, as soon as you decide that you'd like to issue a change order, let me know, and we'll, we'll get started on the work. And I left. 
and went straight up to the assistant director of contracts. This is what he wants us to do. We'd love to do it. We think it's a natural thing, outgrowth of the work. Got to have a change order. He looked at it and he says, you're right. The next day we had a change order. The day after that, we had a different guy sign to our contract. This, this guy was gone. <laughs> so the change has to be, number one, has to be within the, within the general scope of the contract. As I said earlier, you can't go from building submarines to building aircraft. You know, you have to be in the, within the general scope. But insist on getting a change order if what you're being asked to do is outside what you consider the scope of the contract to be. I mean, you may not be right, and you may end up accepting the government's interpretation, but start with that. Say, hey, this is, this is really outside the scope of the contract. Why don't you issue me a change order? Okay, the, this is kind of a restating of the fact that the process we just described of going through and evaluating these processes, a very formal process, is described in the FAR. There's a whole section on, on uh, how those evaluations are to be conducted. You're listening to The Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. So the final evaluation process steps, they compile the findings, they present them to the source selection official, as we saw on the, uh, on the chart earlier. If there's negotiations necessary, those are started. Contracts are signed, a contract is signed. You debrief everybody who wasn't successful. And then the protests start. Then the process starts. One time we were responding to a, a solicitation for engineering workstations, high-end, and in fact, high-end PCs. And the, uh, it was estimated to be a $100 million procurement. And as we were going through it and coming up with questions and so on and submitting the questions, it was about that time that, uh, that the GSA schedules the ability to use GSA schedules got changed and they became competitive by definition and, and BPAs were identified and so on. But one Friday afternoon, we were sitting there with, I was sitting there with the, the technical guy. I was proposal manager and he was the, the technical manager of the process. And I said, you know, I just was reading this, the stuff on the, on the changes to GSA schedules and stuff. I don't think they need a solicitation at all. I think we can go in there and tell them to get a BPA against our GSA schedule. A blanket purchase agreement. So we talked about it and we talked about it and we got excited, you know. <laughs> we, we would eliminate that 26-month uh, period. We'd eliminate all those competitors. So I called the contracting officer's boss, who I, who I knew and, and, and had dealt with many times. And I went down through and I said, I, said, uh, I don't think you need a, a, a procurement at all here, a solicitation at all. What do you mean? I think we can use a BPA on existing GSA schedule that has all these products on it. Went down through all the arguments we talked about here as to why that was a good thing. You know, it happens immediately. It constantly refreshed. You're always getting the latest equipment. Uh, you're always, com always uh, in competition with the, the commercial marketplace. In many cases, the long-term contracts they would buy computers on, they'd be paying more than you can buy it at Best Buy for. And here they were a government trying to buy a, a thousand of these things, and you can go out and buy one at Best Buy for less than they were paying. And I made that point with them. You know, if you get this, if you go this way, then you're always going to be always going to have a competitive price. There was a long pause. He said, "Send me a letter." I had a letter on his desk in two hours. <laughs> Faxed into him in two hours. On Monday, solicitation was canceled. We got a BPA against the GSA schedule 29 days later. That $100 million procurement became a BPA against our uh, GSA schedule. It ended up, and when he, when he sent, the, sent us the contract to sign, the BPA, he said he was gonna, this, he's going to sign us that. I said to him, you know, this is the first time this has been done. This was the first time, first BPA has ever done against the GSA schedule. I said, this is the first one that's ever been done. Why don't you award more than one so that 
Nobody can come in and say, oh, you're just, you're just dealing with IBM. You're, you just want to get IBM in here. That's why you did this. So he awarded the second one to somebody else. And we ended up splitting the procurement. We ended up probably getting uh, $40 million out of it. And the other guy ended up getting probably $15 million. Instead of $100 million, they ended up spending a little over $50 million. And they got current technology each time they went out to buy. And they, had, they, they, would, they would play us against each other because we were furnishing the same capability. So when we were evaluating whether or not we were going to make a bid decision, that was we, we came up with one that said, hey, you don't need this solicitation at all. We never had to go through this whole process. They saved probably uh, 20 months worth. Of, there were no protests. Nobody was quarreling that this had gone the wrong way and so on. They didn't have to do all this evaluating to sequester somebody off in a separate uh, wing of the building. And so they, in, in this case, when they go through all that, then they debrief the protesters, the proposers. <laughs> they become the protesters. <laughs> and again, you, you, uh, the three days... Make sure you request the debrief within that uh, three days. And then if you're unsuccessful, if you feel you have a reason to protest, protest the award. As, as the saying goes in the business, a protest costs a three-cent stamp. Well, it's a, I guess it's a 41-cent stamp now, but uh, that's all it takes. It's a, it's a letter. The letter has to refer to the specific parts of the proposal that you feel were, were either incorrectly analyzed or the numbers weren't right or whatever. But it, it, all it takes is a letter. If you're unsuccessful at the agency, you can bump it up and you can end up at GAO. And if you're unsuccessful, if you're trying to decide whether or not you want to go to GAO, you can also go into the Court of Claims. You can actually get it into court rather than going to uh, GAO. Now, you're only going to do that, obviously, if it's a huge contract where it, where, uh, it makes sense to spend the money to do that, to do the, go through a formal protest, all lawyers to get involved and so on. Okay, the debriefing. You want to know why you didn't win? Where was I strong? Where was I weak? What was the overall rating where I stood in, in evaluation to the other bidders? How did you evaluate my past performance? Maybe you made a mistake. You want to know the overall ranking. Was I number, number two or was I number ten? If I'm number ten, I'm going to kiss this goodbye. If I'm number two, I may want to do something. I may want to uh, try to protest. Anyway, they, they summarized then how they came to the decision to make the award to the company that they did. Yeah, here we say if it was improperly conducted or if they made an error. They added something wrong or they just they, uh, read something wrong. And I've been to a lot of debriefings and I've, I've conducted debriefings. They're normally of sufficient detail to allow you to, to uh, make a decision whether or not you're going to protest. Yeah. You can go to the, end up at the uh, General Accounting Office. They've just changed that name, incidentally, to a General Accountability Office. <laughs> because, you know, the General Accounting Office is kind of an old-fashioned term. An awful lot of what they do uh, is not purely accounting. They do a lot of, uh, of financial analysis. They do a lot of technical analysis. They have a lot of engineers on staff. Must be within those 10 calendar days after you know the basis for the protest. If you're outside that 10 days, it's rejected. Your protest is rejected. You're untimely. You're untimely. Very similar to the bid submission times and dates. If you're a late bid, you're untimely. So you understand the process for getting a solicitation issued, the process that the government goes through, the way they look at the, what the, the requirements are going to be, how they're going to be uh, evaluated, what the evaluation criteria are, basis for responsive bids, how they get evaluated, request a debriefing or, get a, or file a protest if you feel that it's uh, appropriate.
Thank you for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. For a free quote on equipment leasing and financing, visit our website, applecapitalgroup.com. That's applecapitalgroup.com. And fill out the information to receive your free quote. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And remember, you can always get to the core via iTunes. You'll find all our previous episodes there. Thanks again for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet.